0: All right, welcome everyone to another episode of the Jake Dunlap Show. We are very excited that you joined us. If you haven't tuned in, this is the show where we talk to celebrities, thought, and industry leaders to really discover their journey to success. I am super excited that you're joining us. This show is like no other, I can promise you that. You might laugh, you might cry, but you will definitely leave inspired and gain a whole new level of insight into those people that you follow, love and admire all right what is up everybody welcome to another episode of the jake dunlap show i am very excited uh for today um i have you know joining me an entrepreneur uh fund manager uh, someone who's also taught uh taught school in india he's a (laughs) pilot proficient snowboarder um and really, just all around amazing entrepreneur, third generation entrepreneur. Um, I have Mr. Eric Huberman. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Love it, man. I'm looking forward to chopping it up. I've been a big fan of Hawk for a while. Uh, you know, you guys got started right around the same time that we did, and and have just really built, I think, a next generation agency. And so I'm excited to walk <laughs> through it and and get deep and get deep. All right, so every episode what we do is we try to break down. The journey of people who have risen to a certain level of success, whether it's in media, entrepreneurship, business, and you know, we really like to start with the the background and the backstory. So, you, my friend, were born in Ojai, California. Which, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, he can tell you a little bit about Ojai. And you know, really, I thought one of the things that was really interesting is. Um, you know, you, you had kind of lived in LA as well too, but at the age of of seven, I think it was you, you guys made the the trip up there, right for for good. So, so yep. tell me what what was life like for you? You know, maybe just you can even go back to kind of being born in Ohio, but then living in LA. Like, what were your first you know seven, 10 years like for you? You know, growing up in Ohio, and you can talk a little bit about the Oak Grove School, which I think will be sure. really interesting for people as well.
1: Yeah, so first six years of my life were in LA. Um, I, you know, my parents were always super supportive. So I got a great little childhood up, you know, until six years old living here. I, I started school early on a November birthday and I was always the youngest in my class. So even in like in kindergarten, it really didn't mean anything. I remember in first grade, I was bullied a little bit, even first graders, but still teased a little bit for being the smaller kid and didn't like that. So when my parents said we were moving to Ohio. Uh, we went and and we had visited every summer. I loved Ohio. We'd spend all the time in the pool, all that kind of stuff. And then we went and visited the school. I'd be going to Oak Grove, as you mentioned, and liked the kids right away. So like, I remember being six and like having no hesitation, like my friends in LA were cool, but whatever, let's go to Ohio. Like there was no like attachment. So we moved, um, and Oak Grove is a really fascinating school. It was founded by an Indian philosopher named Jada Krishnamurti that was told when he was born that he was like this next coming of some, you know, God or something like that. And he's put on stage in front of hundreds of thousand people at 12 years old. And he stood up there. He's like, I'm not some God, like I'm just a kid. And so he ended up spending his life, you know, dedicated to education and charity and, and philosophy. And so he had a lot of followers in the seventies and eighties, sixties, seventies, eighties. And he had a few schools in India a school in uh, the UK. And then he opened a school in the U S called Oak Grove. And it was anywhere between six and 15 kids per grade preschool through high school. Uh, So super small. I think it was 130 kids total preschool through high school. And we uh, yeah. Teachers called by their first name, like none of, you know, really they had to have certain standardized education things just by being a part of, you know, I guess the California education California, board and yeah. et cetera. Yeah. But it wasn't, uh, they really tried to get a rate. They, they were like anti-competition. It wasn't about competing with other people. They were anti like standardized testing and they just wanted kids to grow up and learn. And we still learned all the same things every other school. I know that now because I talked to other kids, like we read the same books learned the same history, but it was just not as rigorous about like memorization and testing. And it was a little more autonomous and oh, and they were very supportive, of kind of marching to the beat of your own drum at that school. So it, w- it was fun. It was you know, known as the hippie school in the hippie town. So Ojai, which is to most people known as a very spiritual hippie place uh, that know it. I was at the school that every other school was like, whoa, you go to the hippie school. So we were like the hippies <laughs> amongst hippies. It was great. Um, no, but it was super fun. I uh, wouldn't have traded that for anything. And you know, I-, I don't know if I could live in Ojai anymore. I love visiting. My mom's still there. But would de- we've, my wife and I have definitely talked about like, God, it'd be great to be able to send our kids to that school because we had my my school experience was basically going to summer camp my entire childhood. That's wild, man. Um, yeah, that's so nice. when you think about
0: the uh like those first years right and, and and obviously i mean you went there from i mean a really unique experience right same school from you know basically 11 years you know since so you kind of grow up in this school you know are you playing sports are you in band are you uh star a superstar you know uh you know academics you know what was you know think of like like high school you know high school and again going to high school like this has got to be kind of wild too right like um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Like that period of life for you is you're kind of like starting to kind of probably become more aware too, of just how hippie this school is and and yeah. place
1: in it. So high school was fun. I mean, we had 42 kids in the high school when I graduated. So, you know, that was That's insane, the, man. It's insane. My senior class was 11, three girls and eight guys. And so, yeah, as a high school, as a high school age kid, you know, coming into your own, trying to meet girls, and that whole thing wasn't a thing. <laughs> there were three girls in our <laughs> guess, grade. Yeah, like, they're you just know. like,
0: can these guys please just stop hitting on us?
1: Yeah, you I remember, know. like, one didn't really, there were three. One didn't date, one dated my best friend, and one dated a guy two years old. Like, that were the three girls in our class. That, <laughs> like, I still remember that. And still in touch with, I'm still in touch somewhat with all of them, not really, mostly one, but the other two a little bit. So, uh, but yeah, it's, That part was funny. I was, again, a head shorter than everyone. I was 5'2 my junior year of high school. So, and I'm six foot now. So, I was, you know, I played sports. I was active, but never good. Um, I think you mentioned snowboarding. That's one of the reasons I think I gravitated towards that is it wasn't about anyone else. It was just competing with myself. Um, And so, uh, and I started snowboarding when I was 11. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I'd mountain bike. We'd go camping. Uh, I was really into video games. Uh, it's a small town, not a lot to do. So my junior and senior year of high school, I'd basically go to school, then go to work for like, I'm trying to remember, I think three or four hours after school. And yeah, I think four, and then I would go home and play video games until two, three o'clock in the morning, go to sleep, wake up at seven. Oh no, sorry. I was going to the gym then. So I'd wake up at five thirty. go to the gym, go to school, go to work, play video games and sleep literally two, four hours a night and then would take naps throughout the day during class. (laughs) So What
0: what were you doing for work? What was that? I and Yeah, your dad was an entrepreneur. Your grandfather was an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I know you kind of come from those chops as well.
1: Well, yeah, it start, that side of the entrepreneurship started early. Like at six years old, I grabbed a bunch of stuff around my family's house and decided my dad and mom didn't need these things anymore and went door-to-door selling my parents' things without asking them. <laughs> Small town, was safe. So with my buddy and we'd go, you know, like five cents for this golf ball and 10 cents for this light bulb. Like, what are we? That's the stuff. I was like, they have plenty. I'll sell some of this. Mm-hmm. Didn't like that. So then just, uh, when I was eight, I wanted to... I grew up wanting to play guitar. So you mentioned music. Like I've, I grew up thinking I was going to be a musician as a profession. And so I, uh, I wanted electric guitar. The only other person that named Eric that I knew of was Eric Clapton. So I was like, gotta be like him. Gotta get a, you know, Fender Strat. And so I went to my dad and said, Hey, can, uh, can I have an electric guitar? And he said, yeah, sure. Go get a job. Okay. So I started selling lemonade Uh, I think I earned a few, you know, seven bucks the first day. I was like, wow, this is gonna take way too long. I got to figure out a better way to make money. And so I still remember all this. So I uh, started buying and selling Beanie Babies because I saw that these things (laughs) were getting really hyped up.
0: (laughs) And in that year- or On eBay? Are you flipping on eBay? Is that what you're doing?
1: I think I was. Like, I remember that, but I don't know. Eight years old, that was, or I think maybe eight or nine. That was, what, I'm 86. So 95 was eBay around because I remember (laughs) eBay- Maybe, I definitely, maybe, yeah. It was either that I was selling in something because I remember like meeting people to sell them. Like people would buy it on either online or like I'd sell in like the classified section or something, but I was selling, <laughs> you know, I was selling these things. You buy them for five bucks and I was selling them for 50, 75. I had one that sold for $450. So I ended oh. up making like four grand as an eight, and nine year old flipping doing beanie the flipping beanie, beanie babies Jesus. on the weekends and bought my guitar, which was actually only 150 bucks. But then I bought a BMX and I saved some money for a car and I liked that. So then going back to high school, I started in a, my first job was for one night in a restaurant where I was a bus boy. And the next day I broke my arm. And so they wouldn't let me bus anymore. Uh, Turns out you're not allowed to fire someone for breaking something, but they did. Uh, And so (laughs) you've learned that now. Yeah. Um, And then I worked in a health food store for my, basically my junior year of high school and, uh, that was a great lesson in why I never wanted to work for someone again while also love the store, by the way, it's still there. It's called rainbow bridge. The ownership's great. The general manager was great. The the problem I ended up with was my manager, the guy I worked directly for, so not the GM, but the guy under him, I started at minimum wage, went in there and they told me, you know, I knew it was standard that at least in six months, I'd probably get a raise so I worked and worked and I was, I loved working and I really liked people. And they even taught me this there. I hated stocking shelves and recording inventory but if I could work the cash registers or the deli I had a lot of fun. And uh, But I was always down to do whatever they needed me to do too. I, six months in, I was training people at the cash register and helping people learn the way and learn out of stock and learn all these things. And somehow, like, it just came up. I don't even, like, it wasn't a prying thing because I never really bothered it. But someone mentioned, you know, like some, I think I was getting six seventy five an hour. And someone goes, I'm only getting paid nine bucks an hour for this. And I'm training the person. I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what? So I walked into the GM's office. I was always super comfortable with this and said, hey, like, what's the deal here? And long story short, it turned out, uh, my manager had been taking credit for all my work and telling the GM I was doing nothing for six months and telling him that I, he was talking to me, which had never came up to me. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, you know, he's saying that he's having to stock the shelves and he's having to do this. And I'm like, but I just, I do all that. What are you talking about? Like it's on camera. And I realized at that point, the way I was going to advance in that job was not to do a good job. It was to play politics. And I pretty much lost taste forever working for someone again. Cause I was like, I want to make money because I deserve to make money. Not because someone thinks I deserve to make money. And so, yeah, that was my high school job stopped, finished my senior year. Senior year uh went through it and then graduated, got into Arizona August before my senior year, University of Arizona. I, I committed to it and was like, all right, well, I guess I'm in college now and I'm still and so I had terrible senioritis, barely paid attention, got I think I got suspended like four times senior year for I, what? I drag raced my best friend in the parking lot of the school and outruns our uh what was it, our physics teacher and just like does this and do, like both thumbs down like we're like that's not a good hand gesture we were drag racing in the parking lot of a school so it's probably not the best um we i broke into our library because we used to hang out in it and that's where all the couches and computers and internet was right and my a girl i had dated that like oh we always had friction she got angry at me about something and came in with a cup of tomato sauce and tried to throw it at me and i hit it out of her hand and it spilled everywhere and literally from then on and we cleaned it up but someone told on us, and so they decided they were shutting down the library going forward during lunch hours, which I was like, well, that's BS. That's the only place I like to hang out. So I got caught climbing through the skylight, breaking into the library to open it up <laughs> for everyone else. Because <laughs> I, I was still the little guy, so they boosted me up on the roof. I opened up the skylight. I jumped down. The librarian's standing right there as I jumped through the skylight onto a top of a bookshelf to jump down. Yeah, I, and uh, I watch all my friends. She's staring at me like this. I watch all my friends run behind her out, you know bolt. <laughs> <laughs> <Of> course, <laughs> so like, I took the fall. I was never there. This is all Eric. I don't know yeah, how he exactly. got up there. Yeah, exactly. So, so you,
0: yeah, this is interesting, man. So again, you, you've got these kind of rebellious streets. Yeah. Like, where do you think? And, you know, even just like understanding, like, where do you think this comes from? Like, or where do you think kind of this like drive, you know, again, you and I talked before, I know that you're like, you know, we talked about like your grandfather owned a scrapyard and your your dad yeah. took that business and did some really interesting things. Do you like, where, where do you feel this like, independent spirit. Maybe that's a good way. Maybe that could just be the nature of the school came from.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, I think my mom was incredibly supportive and like always like she was proud of me to do, I think to the point I'd roll my eyes. Like she was no matter what I tied my shoe, she was proud of me. Like it was always, she was always proud of me. So it gave me all the confidence. And then the school was basically anti-authority like they they didn't make us most people are brought up you know calling their teachers Mr. and Mrs. from preschool and being you know it's all about respecting authority and following authority and you know that's great if you want to raise a you know raise a worker be like they're going to follow authority I you know everybody every company needs People that are gonna work, but it's not how you raise an entrepreneur in this school. I'm not saying that it spits out an exception, it actually percentage-wise, it probably spits out an exceptional amount of entrepreneurs and not because of the sex appeal of entrepreneurship, like you get at sort of the, you know, prep schools, but because so many kids are just like, why are things done that way? That doesn't make sense. Like, why should I listen to you? Why should I do this? And that is consistent amongst most kids there. They don't just follow authority uh, because they're not taught to, right? They're taught to question, they're taught to ask questions or and most teachers there. Love it, some teachers get really bent out of shape I, I definitely uh, o- uh, overwhelmed my teacher a teacher or two while I
0: was going through that school i I can, I can relate yeah, I can relate yeah. um, so so how did you choose u of a you know out of all yeah. the schools you know in in California and elsewhere and your yeah, experience it, like how does u of a land on like the the one
1: yeah so i 'm sixteen it 's August of two thousand and three, so before my senior year. And my, we had a family friend that went to U of A and my mom's like, well, why don't you go visit? Like, oh, and I was talking to a a college counselor outside of my school that I was like, I want to go to business school. I want to go someplace that, you know, maybe close enough, but far enough. Like, I don't want my parents just dropping in on a whim like LA, but I'd like to be able to come home if I want to. Things that you think are priorities when you're 16. Turns out you can fly wherever, but that's what I was thinking through. And she's like, well, University of Arizona is a top 20 business school. It's you know, close but far. And then it's like, well, our family friend had a friend that was like three years older. So it wasn't that close to him, but knew who he was that was going there. And he's like, come out and visit. So my mom and I went out there for a weekend for the U of A LSU game as school started back in August and went out to Arizona during an LSU U of A game, went to a pajama party. At U of A, which is not what you would think. And at 16, I'm like, oh, I'm going here. This is a good, <laughs> there's a, apparently, there's good academics, but this looks amazing. Like, you go from being in a small town with nobody. And the and truly, my thought was, am my graduating class is 11. I never struggled academically. Like, school came really, really easy for me. I never had to pay attention and I got good grades. And so, going to college, I was like, I don't need, I don't want to go to Ivy League. I don't want to go to grad school. So like, I don't want, I don't need that good of a college. I want a good college because I don't want to waste my time, but I'm going to kind of, uh, for the social aspect, I'm going to spread my wings, learn how to, you know, interact with people, meet people, that kind of thing. And U of A more, every time I mentioned it to someone when I was applying was like, oh, that's a fun school. It's like, all right. So that's why I went. And honestly was a great choice. Don't regret it. Not because it was just fun, but because I needed that.
0: Yeah. And so what was, I mean, obviously, and I know that you work throughout college as well too. Yeah. So obviously, so you go for the social aspect. Uh-huh. Um, what were those kind of college years like? I know that you worked at vector marketing. Like I, I know yeah. a lot of salespeople kind of cut their their teeth at, at vector and yeah, it's and incredibly with, valuable.
1: Like yeah. vector marketing, I I I tried to push my brother to do it. He didn't. My brother's doing fine now, but he's nine years younger, so he's in real estate now. But early on, I just I think if you want to learn sales skills, like doing that for a summer, there's nothing better in terms of just a crash course in sales. But yeah, I worked in a real estate office. My my thought around working in school was, I want to go get a job that's going to teach me something that's either going to help me figure out what I want to do long term, or give me a skill that I can carry with me with whatever I do. So I thought real estate. So I worked in a real estate office after my freshman year, didn't really like it. Um, but I was okay. Sophomore year, wanted to work in sales, tried to get a job as a used car dealer because I heard that was like the toughest sales job and no one would hire me for three months. And then I got a vector marketing cut co sends out letters saying, you know, recruiting thousands th- tens of thousands of college because I don't even know what the number is it might be hundreds of thousands every summer. Oh, yeah. So like they hit the perfect guy that was like, I was looking for a sales job and they sent this letter in the mail. It was just like serendipity, like done, signed up all in, took their trainings, took it seriously and ended up crushing all their records for the summer. And so they offered me to run an office in Central California, San Luis Obispo County. And they uh yeah, they put they promoted me. They flew me to Vegas. They flew me to Olean, in New York where their factory was. They were, you know, sending me around. I ran their Pasadena office for the month of like basically my winter break um, and was training. Uh and yeah, with school during school, like I when school was in session, I didn't have a job except for this, like that was my junior year or yeah, junior year, I was flying around and stuff. But most of the time I focused on school, having fun, still played video games um, and was always competitive. I was actually pretty competitive. In high school, I was ranked three in the world on Warcraft three, which was now you're a multimillionaire. Back then, you don't talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I was into it, but then I I joined a fraternity, uh, had a ton of friends, went out a lot, partied a lot, that kind of stuff. Like Just had a very like other than maybe the video game part, but had a very like movie-esque, like typical college experience. Like U of A, we we went out every night except for Mondays because Mondays were the night we took off. But every other night we had either a bar we went to or we would go to a house party. There were pool parties every single Saturday. Like it was just, it was nuts, but fun. And I went during the Gronkowski era. So Gronk, we'd go, you know, all the stories of him in college were while I was there too. So ran into him every weekend somewhere. Um, that's got to be wild, man. Yeah, he's that's nuts. Gotta, he, yeah,
0: it was. I fun. can imagine, like Gronk, like U of A Gronk in
1: particular, and and I'd you, say he's I mean, exactly the same is actually. I that's kind of what I figured. Yeah. I'm like it's yeah. probably like, that He's not worse or better. It just seems like from what I've seen. I haven't hung out with him in forever, but yeah, it seems the same.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's funny, man. And yeah. so, so, but yeah, going back to Vector, like what. You know, here you are, you you know, you haven't really done like, you know, you've had these kind of various roles, but not like sales, sales roles, right? What was it that clicked for you? You know, like obviously to go from, you know, kind of just starting this, going through training to being somebody who's a top, top, top performer and training all these offices. What was it like? What do you think separated you? (laughs)
1: Yeah, a few things. One, fully committed. Like I wasn't ever questioning. They did everything they said to do. So I was just like, okay, this is the program. Let's run it. Like I like to work. So it was never an issue. I also grew up with my dad. I was I'm the oldest. My dad made his success as I grew up. So like born in an apartment, grew up to the point where, you know, ended up with a frankly very successful family. And he was so concerned I'd be a spoiled rich kid, it went the other way where he was pretty tough <laughs> on me. And uh I also my dad had a short fuse with me as a kid, not in terms of anything violent or abusive, but just like angry or yelling, or I'd get it, I'd get a different answer depending on how I asked something. And I do I've you know reflected on this a lot. I do believe that my dad is super sensitive with word choice and with how you word something. Like if I said, uh, I want to go to a friend's house, it'd be like, are you fucking telling me what you're going to do? What do you mean? You want to go to a friend's house? And then if I said, hey, dad, do you mind if I go to a friend's house? Yeah, sure, no problem. It was literally those little nuances made the difference. Yeah. And as weird as that is, I think that taught me so much about sales because those little word choices and nuance and communication are the difference between getting a deal so and not. So spot on,
0: man. And so- So spot on.
1: I honestly think through his volatility, I learned a lot of sales skills. And then I followed their program. I read their scripts. I studied everything. I ran the program they said to. and And I also- I didn't just do it for the sake of doing it, I understood why. So when they said, you know, oh and this is where you tell them the price. Well, why now? Why not before? Why didn't I say the price when we started? Oh, I understand because you want to demonstrate the value before you get to price. Like I actually understood why they had you do these things. And so and or I'd ask if I didn't. Yeah. And again, no fear of authority, I had no problem talking to my manager and being like, "Wait, why?" Why do I do that? Let's talk about like, what's the reasoning behind this? Why can't I do it this way? And then frankly, I did it you know, for those three months where I made mistakes and tried to run my own course and watched how bad things happen when I tried to redo it my own way and just get pushy or whatever it was. So be, developed my own sort of sale. I don't wanna say culture, but my, my sales persona where it's like, I don't like being pushy. I just like demonstrating value and asking for the sale and that's it. And I found that that developed a lot of trust. And so- Learn that quickly.
0: Um, yeah, there's so many lessons there, and I think for a lot of people who are in sales, or, or even people not in sales, right? They they think sales is like natural, like oh, it just comes easy. And there definitely are parts of like from a personality standpoint that you know can make people maybe have a, a gear to be able to get to be an A player. But so much of sales is a process, and and I think for those both not in sales and in sales, it's a really interesting, again, there's, there's micro nuances around how you phrase something. And you know, by saying it this way, it makes you 5% more likely to get something done. I think that those yep. are the most underappreciated parts of sales. And I think particularly today, where I think people many times want to feel like, again, sales is, you know, it's all about relationship building and those things, which isn't like, that's like untrue, where, you know, of course you want to do that. But yep. the process, the script, and I had a very similar moment when I was 26, I, You know, very successful in sales and early on. And I had a boss. I was the second to last person to sell something. And he's like, I listen to your calls. It's my boss's boss. He's like, I listen to your calls. And why aren't you reading the script? I'm like, the script, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jake Dunlap. I don't follow scripts. Yeah. And he's like, he, gives, he, gives, he has a company called Career Builder, right? Which was a big job oh, site yeah. back, back in the day. And he goes, Jake, do you think we train a thousand people on this script because we're stupid? And I'm yeah. like, no, no. And he's like, then just do it. He's like, why wouldn't you? And so just similar to your, your story of yeah. falling on your face for a few months, like, you know, I'd fall yeah, I'd fallen on my face for about a month, and half, two months, then I closed 60,000 in new business next right. month. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my, it was like this, the most yeah. like, again, I can still tell that story so vividly because I remember it was like such a light bulb moment of like, whoa,
1: when it's as a like, young person, you don't r- realize like how much money and time and effort and thought has gone into that script. You're just like, oh yeah, like they know anything. And then it's like, oh wait, no, they, <laughs> yeah, you know, I know how to, it was a multi-billion dollar knife company training college kids to sell knives. And by the way, I never really questioned it. I just got to the point where I got cocky, where I was like, I'm selling like crazy. I don't need a script. And then I was like, oh wow, I'm not doing as well anymore. I should get back to that. Back <laughs> to go, yeah. Get back to it. So, yeah. so then so you graduate. Yeah. um you also well, go- one thing happened actually before that i yeah the next summer i was supposed to open san luis obispo a month before i opened that office got a call from a friend that said hey i've done a lot of research california passed a law that they, you have to filter your storm drains now if you own oh, property yeah, this is storm water maintenance company exactly yeah, and yeah, so yeah. He asked me if i'd join him because he's like you know sales and marketing and which again i was 20 years old and was like i know what uh okay and so i Bailed on opening that office and kind of, I helped the transition, but I was like, I'm not doing this, which definitely pissed off my boss at the time. But I remember sitting with him at a diner. It was April. I was supposed to open in May. I came into town and I sat down with him in person because I felt like the right thing to do and said, "Uh, so I'm not going to be doing this. And he said, I wish you understood the meaning of commitment. And I'll never forget that because it cut a little deep. It was like, oof, that's where you went with that. But I'm still in touch with him. He's a great guy. Um, But uh, yeah. That was that, that, oh um, man,
0: but that, but I bet, I bet that carries with you, right? Oh like, yeah. You know, when you think about Into it. people, yeah, yeah
1: I, I like, I'm all, I'm actually someone that really is a man of my word, but I also know that like, and I watch it with my own employees, like at the end of the day, you do have to make the right choice for yourself. And, and you can't, I didn't screw him over. I knew, I, I even talked to him about it. The person just north of me and just south of me could easily blend their, move their lines of their borders and take over my territory. I'd prepped everything. So it was like, I'm not leaving you in the lurch here. You're still going to make your numbers. I just, am not going to be the one to do it. So uh, I was confident in that. And I know they ended up fine. But uh, yeah, and so I went and helped with this storm drain company. I was, you know, I, I wrote our legal contracts by stealing an alarm company Uh, contract and rewriting it to be our own and like, just figured it out and then got our first client got chased off properties called car and artists, all sorts of things that you get to do when you're trying to start something that's literally a brand new industry. And the end of summer came, we had our first contract. And I decided, you know, I was getting pushed to like drop out of school, maybe pursue this. It was like, this was 2007. So it was like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, he dropped out of Harvard and blah, 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 blah. And it was like, Yeah, I'm not going to filter storm drains the rest of my life. So I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, This has been fun. I learned a lot. I owned 50% of the company. I was like, don't even, we never put it in writing because I knew the guy. And I was like, you keep it. I'm going back to school. If you need help, call me. Maybe I'll rejoin you after I graduate. And he turned it into a multi million dollar business. He did well. I did not rejoin him though. So yeah, so I go back to school, finish my senior year, graduate. About February before graduation, I started going, oh, I should probably figure out what I want to do with my life. And real estate came up for me again. And uh, my so my dad was in the waste business. He came from his dad owned a junkyard. He ran the waste for LA, Oxnard, Sacramento, Fremont, basically coastal California, and then used that to get into commercial real estate. So I grew up in high school. I'd go every Wednesday afternoon my two best friends and I, it was not high school. I think it was senior year. We'd go work at my dad's office with one of, with his head of real estate development. And he'd teach us what a cap rate was and whatever, what ROI was and these concepts. So we loved it. Like we loved the numbers. We were, you know, 16, 17 years old, learning things that you usually can't get access to. And so I was like, you know what, I want to get back into that. But I knew, based on the relationship with my dad, especially at the time it was volatile. So I was like, I'm not going to work for my dad, but I'm going to go get into real estate and still, you know, always have his, he always had my back, but I knew that we'd butt heads if I actually joined him directly. So got a job in real estate, got my license, became a commercial real estate agent. And uh, I started exactly a week to the day before the entire banking industry collapsed and Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, et cetera, one week to the day after I started. So it's a good time. How did you? How did you? How did
0: you know? What else is on the table for you? You know, like you know, in terms of graduating, were there other options for you, or or is, again no. was it? Did so that's a kind good, of, yeah, great yeah.
1: question. Uh This was 2008. So 2008, nobody yeah. was hiring anyone. 2007, yeah, is when things started to collapse. two thousand and eights yeah. when they really collapsed. So there were the I went to our job fair, and the people hiring were Edward Jones to be like an entry level, you know, wealth advisor. Sure uh, Target to be a manager and PetSmart to be a manager. And I remember being like using a lot of swear words because I was like, this is what I went to college for. Like, thank you, Arizona, four years in college and I can be a manager at Target. Like, are you fucking kidding me? So yeah. yeah. So that was the, uh, so yeah. So that's why I went to the real estate thing is like, I don't mind eating what I kill. I was confident in my own sales ability and at access. I knew that, you know, I, I, I felt good about using my dad's connections if he had some or just grinding. Cause I also liked hard work. So I was, right. you know, I, I was excited about it. And I remember I went to men's warehouse and bought three suits cause he had to wear a suit every day to work. And like, and, and I, I bet got it was there. buy, buy one, get, get two free. Yeah. It was something like that. It yeah, was, yeah. I mean, I think I spent $150 <laughs> total for like dress shirts, ties, suits, all of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Went and that and started. And I was the first one in the office They gave me a key. So I literally turned the lights on in the morning and I was generally the last one out because I felt like that's what I, I wanted to be the grinder. And funny enough. The, so I sat in a cubicle. There was a, and the two guys in front of me, the guy right here and the guy to like cat, like sort of diagonal were guys slightly like two years older than me that they had been there a little while. And they were the only other two good spirited guys. Cause none of us, we were all too young to know what a, bank or a uh, economic collapse was, but we, we had no idea. So everyone else is miserable. Yeah. We're all positive. And Matt, who was like diagonal for me, we used to play pranks on other agents. We used to have fun with it and still one of my closest friends to this day, we're going to dinner tonight, actually. Um, so the, you know, that was a great relationship we built out of it. But I would say like six months in um, I was looking at it going, I hadn't made no money. I, had $35 million in listings. Cause again, I was grinding. People were down to sell if they could get the price they wanted, but nobody was getting a single offer in the late 2008, early 2009. I
0: remember, man, yeah, I was in yeah. Phoenix. I was in Phoenix at the time and it had just imploded. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, you know, and I was in, I was a very I was young 26. Right. And I'm in the job space, right. In 2000, I'd started Kerr Builder in 2006 and was there six, seven, eight, nine um, and I think that that's it though, early on, like, again, I think that there's a beauty to it. Cause again, I was in Phoenix. I didn't really know about the financial meltdown and like, okay, yeah, people, less people are hiring. Okay. Well, how do we flip this into something else? And, and I think that, and a lot of these, like those experiences teach you how to get creative, yep. you know, and, and how to position things specifically. And so, so you're there for a bit and then you, you know, how long are you, you doing real estate for before you decide to, you know, kind yep. of think about your own thing.
1: So I, I was doing it, for, I did it for a year fully, but six months in, I got a call, I was, oh, we were at six months in, actually, my friend Matt and I started playing with ideas of like, we bought the, we still own it, the domain name, what are talk, we're like, we're gonna build a real estate website, we're gonna get in this internet thing. And da da da. we still own the domain name. I think we bought it for 400 bucks, put it 200 bucks each. And like, I, you know, it was a huge amount of money back then. But uh, now we just sit on it. And then we had all these other ideas. And then I got a call from a friend's dad around April, so it was about six months in, and said so he said, "Hey Eric, been admiring you as a you know young budding entrepreneur." Uh, and uh, you know I was so his son was the drummer in my band in middle school and high school. So okay. I played guitar, but I realized I wasn't that good, so I didn't pursue it. And his son was my drummer. His son had pursued music professionally and was a struggling artist. And he's like, "This just doesn't make sense to me." I think we can harness the entrepreneurial spirit of musicians and help them focus it. Do you have any ideas? Mike? I'll go put a business plan together and figure it out. Thank you, Arizona. The one thing I really did learn there academically was how to write a business plan. Sincerely, I, they did a great yeah. job teaching me that. So I went and put a pretty robust business plan together around business coaching for musicians and uh, brought it back to him. And he said, yeah, this looks great. Uh, I'll circle back with you and you should read this book. It was still my favorite book, uh, appetite for self-destruction by Steve Knopper. Okay. It's basically the perpetual appetite for the in- music industry to self-destruct, meaning they never seem to want to adapt. And it's like the, a whole lesson in adapting to change where it's like they fought when they were, everything was on records and they went to tape. Everyone was like, screw that. And they fought it. And then all the record companies went out, you know, it was just like over and yeah. over again, what happened? It was like Napster was a good example, et cetera. So, uh, He disappears. I go put my head go heads down in real estate again. We had a really big real estate auction, July thirty first, two thousand nine. And I had all my listings ready, and we were going to auction them off. And this was going to be finally where I'd make a little money. And I had made three hundred and fifty dollars so far in that year because I did a broker opinion of value meeting. I gave my opinion of the value of a property to a bank that was selling. You know, trying to see if they'd repossess it. So three hundred fifty bucks in, a year in, a lot of debt. Uh, sitting on credit cards because I still had to pay for my living in LA. And I uh, he calls me right before the auction and goes, Hey, Eric, so I've raised us a million dollars. Uh, you're going to run the company. Uh, you're going to get 5% of the company and we're off to the races. And I was like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah, let me finish this auction and we can circle right back. Go into the auction on July 31st. No one showed up. We had like three bottom barrel bids for one of the seven properties I had, nothing sold. I never went, I went, I didn't even go back to the office after that day. I went to this auction at some hotel. I don't even remember where it was. Didn't go back to the office, called them. I'm like, I'm in. I got minimum wage, which was better than what I had made for the past year. And I ran that company for two years, started building it, found a developer, built out this website around, again, it was like the original masterclass for music business, basically. Aim right. wizard. Yep. If you're same wizard.
0: Are you can find it on LinkedIn, yep. but, but not live anymore.
1: Correct. So in that as a story. So. Yeah, I built it for two years, had 15,000 artists on the platform. Uh, it was profitable, but we were, it was never going to be that big. It's a hamster wheel. Most artists, most struggling artists are struggling because they don't want to work. Just right. to be honest. <laughs> right. There's a minority that are hardworking and I have all the respect in the world for The majority are not. And the minority uh, don't have a lot of money. And, if, and it, we'd have a lot of people that come in and like, we'd tell them all the things they need to do to be famous, which is a lot of work. And they'd be like, "Yeah, I don't want to do that," and they'd quit. Or they wouldn't be famous in two months, and they'd quit. So it was right. a hamster wheel of a business to like keep people in. And so after two years of it, I was like, "This is never going to be that big," and decided to move on. And at the time, my the oh, I forgot to mention my friend's dad. I didn't know anything about him professionally until this. Turns out he was on the board of Men's Warehouse, had another nonprofit with Deepak Chopra, uh, had helped found Pay Per View. Like just a crazy resume. And so that's where he was easy. He easily raised the money and all that. Right. He, his network was pretty crazy. So, also, he brought an incredible amount of like music executives and big artists and celebrities that were a part of the part of Fame Wizard and helped us build out the curriculum and were coaching and helping do talks and stuff. And so, he also, the guy that was running his nonprofit, I became friends with. Turned out we worked at Cutco at the same time. I had met him, but Love we it. don't remember because he ran the Vegas office when I visited Vegas. But we just were like, yeah, we probably met. And so he told me he wanted to move over to work with me on the music thing. We decided he would take over and I would leave. And so he took over and ran it for three years profitably. Um, And I went off and, you know, this could be a lot longer story, but basically I started a t-shirt subscription company called Swag of the Month with a next door neighbor that knew the t-shirt business. Had a college friend build a little one-page site that sent off to PayPal to subscribe. And uh, we got an insane amount of press through a quick tip that I got that just was like, send them the headline they want to write about. Like TechCrunch wants to write about fundraising. So just tell them you raised some money. Doesn't matter if you did, they're not going to double check. <laughs> so, I love it. Yeah, so we did that and we got into every publication we could want. Like Maxim, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, uh, TechCrunch, Thrillist, et cetera. And so it was, we, it was off the races. So we built that for a year, sold it. And this could be a lot longer story, but I'm just also watching the time. No, and man, then,
0: this is good. This is what This is what it's all about. It's yeah. about these years, man
1: and what was really uh crazy about that business we got to a point where we had to sell or raise money or shut it down because we didn't have the working capital to scale it and so my partner and I worked 18 20 hour days every day but didn't have enough money to hire someone else we had no financing either and we were like you know I was 24 years old at the time I was like no one's going to give me anything uh I went and tried with VC nobody knew how the VC were not nobody. There weren't podcasts and tons of articles about how the right. VC world worked. So like I pitched one VC, a guy named Howard Morgan, who started first round capital. He's a legend in the VC space. Yeah. By the way, awesome guy, but he had just invested in a company called fab.com and said that he couldn't invest because there could be some uh, conflict. Fab.com ended up being a half a billion dollar loss. <laughs> yes. um, but that was his reasoning, which made sense. And I respect it. And I've seen him a bunch of times since. And, uh, so we started, um, so I, I went back to my partner. I was like, well, we got to either sell this or shut it down. What if do we had randomly met someone that had an e-commerce holding company that was our age? And she called, that was a Thursday, I think, I'm somewhere around. like say Thursday, Friday, Tuesday calls me and goes, have you thought about selling your company? It's like, uh, maybe. maybe. I mean, and she's like, <laughs> well, how much would you want for it? I was like, and I literally did the math. So went from real estate to fame wizard minimum wage to swag of the month minimum wage. I had some debt. So I looked at my debt. I doubled it because I owned 50% of the company. I was like, this much? And she's like, yeah, okay. Come pick up a check if you want to transfer everything. She trusted me. She's like, pick up a check. I'll just pay cash and you can, well, I'll take it over. And then I'll call you if I need anything. Literally that night drove down to her place, wrote me a check, put it in the bank, Uh, gave her all the access. And she called me a couple of times with some questions. And that was it. The rules were the stipulations where I couldn't say who bought it. And I couldn't say for how much. So I was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. So I paid off my debt, gave my partner the other half. And that was a really interesting time, which this up until COVID, I will say most stressful few weeks of my life. Because it's really interesting. So I actually right after that happened, I went to uh, I went on birthright. I had scheduled going to Israel. Uh, if You don't know, or I know you do, but yeah, I yeah. don't know. You get a free trip to Israel as a Jew between 18 and 26 years old. And I was 25, almost 26. So I was like, well, I got to take advantage of this now. Or I don't get to do it. Signed up. I came back. My roommates had changed our lease to be up in three days instead of a month and three days that I thought I'd have. And I also, I had just sold a company and I paid off all my debt, which meant I had no job and I was flat broke. <laughs> you still have no money. Yeah, but you I'm just zero. I'm not negative anymore. I'm just at zero, which means I'm right. broke <laughs> with no cash flow. So I start applying for jobs and trying to scramble. Uh, ended up staying with a friend, uh, and I within three weeks. This was like a big turning point for me. I didn't know my value. I had built a couple little startups. You know, the only reference I had, other than like friends and stuff like that, were like what's in the news and my dad who you know, at this point was flying private and having a great time. So I'm like, I have, I done anything. And in three weeks at 25 years old, I got offered to be the head of business development at live nation, the head of e-commerce at Warner music, and to join as a, a consultant at a little incubator in Santa Monica called science, all offering me six figure salaries. And I was like, used to making minimum wage scrounging by. And within three weeks, I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm rich. Like, Holy shit. So, uh, uh, much to my parents' disappointment because they're being conservative for my sake. We're like, well, you're obviously going to work at Warner music or live nation. I was like, no, no, no. This incubator thing sounds cool. I like startups. They're all yeah. paying you the same seriously. Big part of the decision. I lived in Santa Monica. Science was in Santa Monica, live nations in Hollywood, Warner music's in Burbank. I want to stay in Santa Monica. So got took the job at this incubator that had just launched a startup called dollar shave club. And said, I think that's more more interesting. I like this e commerce thing, et cetera. Hadn't really honed in on my own. Like I was still trying to figure out: am I music? Am I fashion? Am I like what? What is my personal brand in that sense? And when I joined there, it became pretty clear that it was e com. So I advised for Dollar Shave, advised for this portfolio of e commerce brands, uh, and ended up helping one of them pivot from a vitamin company to a women's activewear brand. And over the course of the year, within six months, we were doing half a million a month in revenue. And uh, scaled that, again, I want to make a long story short, they ended up making a lot of operational mistakes and trying to vertically integrate, blew all of their cash and uh, ended up get struggling having to lay off people, even though it was a rocket ship. And I ended up helping them sell it. I've, I had, through my networking, met a guy that owned a massive activewear manufacturer, helped them sell it to him. I bailed. He asked me to join him to work for him. I said, no, but I'll consult one day a week. He said, three days a week. I said, fine, but you got to pay me. I think it was 200, 200 an hour, something, no, it was a hundred an hour. And he he was like, which is 200 grand a year, basically. And I'm making a hundred at the moment, just to be clear. So I went from a hundred grand a year. So I said, you have to pay me a hundred an hour. And so he's like, fine, but you have to work three days a week. And so then I did the math. I'm like, wait, I'm going to (laughs) make more money working three days a week for this guy than I made full time at this. And now I have another four days a week to do whatever I want to do. So then I started advising and consulting for other brands and through that six months, I was started to build a tea company, a fitness and health tea company. Okay. That was going to be my next thing. And I was advising for all these brands because I liked the idea of not burning my own cash and paying the bills. And I was sure. making good cash. And I kept signing more and more clients. And the first one that after him, the first guy that asked me like, Hey, will you just advise me? I'm like, sure. a Grand a month. He's like, no problem. I'm like shit. Too easy. Second one. It was like two grand a month. No problem. Too easy. Third one. <laughs> I was like three grand a month. He's like, uh, okay, fine. Perfect. Three grand. It is. I still want him to say yes, but I want him to hesitate a second. So right, that yeah. became my pricing. I'll advise and do like outsource CMO work for three grand a month. And by November I had hired an assistant, uh, i had this named is 2014, it hawk, right? 2014
0: right 2013 this is 2013. 2013
1: okay i had named it hawk media because i again i had no plan on building anything there i was just like i'm consulting why build shape tea was a tea company i have an assistant now and uh uh, two things happened. One, I kept trying to hire agencies or individuals for these companies and found that like 99% of agencies and marketers out there are full of shit and have no idea what they're doing. And the few that are good are expensive or want contracts or are hard to attract or something else, agency or in-house. And so it was just a cluster. And also I was I had planned a three-week trip to Thailand at the end of 2013 for New Year's. And I knew that if I left, my clients would not be paying me vacation days and they may not ever come back because I would set them up mm-hmm. for success. And so I was like, this could be really bad. So I ended up going, well, how about this? I'm going to hire a small little SWAT team. They're going to work with these clients on all the things I've been trying to find agencies to do, anyways. So I'm going to hire a few people with the income I have. And at this point, I'm making 30 grand a month as a 26 year old, or turning 27. Uh, And I was used to making three grand a month. So I was like, not spending it. I was like, I'll just hire a few people use this money for that. And maybe we'll build maybe and then maybe that team will become my tea company team as that launches. So worked. I hired a few people. I grabbed the guy that was running the music company. I was like, we were right. It's been five years that thing's never going to be big. Shut it down. Come join me. And he did. So he shut it down. He became my head of operations and like my client facing person and then brought on a few more people and over time built out this team that, uh, or not over time, quickly built out this little SWAT team and then went to the clients and said, hey, it's all a la carte all month to month. But now we have an email marketer, a Facebook marketer, et cetera, set up what I needed to to leave, went away for three weeks, came back. And that's what we call kind of the first day of Hawk it was January 13th, 2014, came back and really started to lean on it, put some goals, thought together and launched the tea company. The tea company did about 30 grand in revenue in the first two months. Hawk, uh, Hawk did 60 grand month one, like 65, let's say month two, whatever it was, started to scale. And I'm like, yeah, screw the tea company, shut it down <laughs> and started focusing. And that was the beginning of Hawk Media.
0: Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I ran into Hawk, I think for the first time in 2015, right? Cause you know, I started scaled, I think it, was, it might've been January 13th in 2013, so a year before. Okay. And so, uh, you know, I think it was really what I thought was novel that really bucked the trend was everyone in, in this kind of marketing world, right? It's like big retainers, um, yeah. you know, commit to the people without really... And you know how it is. Any agency are only as good as the people that you get on the the team. And, and But you went the other way. Like, you you know, you were like, look, here are the experts that you need, right? You got a CMO, a social, an email yeah. marketing, a performance you know, what was the allure for you? Or what did you see that made you think, hmm, like, what if we were more flexible here? Because I think it would have been really easy to not do that, you know, and, and to to not be flexible and to want that locked in. What was it that you saw that that led you to like that that initial business model?
1: I'm running my own brands. I hated how agencies worked. I was frustrated with agencies like anyone else. Like, wait, you want me to give you a year contract and we've never... Done anything with you. Like you want to get married and not date. Like, that's what you're asking me to do. And like, okay, so I'm gonna work with you. Like that part really pissed me off. And that was something everyone did. So I was like, not doing that. I just the idea of like, why aren't any agencies client-centric? It was always this pretentious vibe of like, we only take the best clients or we only uh we only take the best clients, we only take big contracts, whatever it was, it was like, this just seems backwards. Like every other industry I know is client-centric, customer-centric. And this is all about what the agency and their pretentious ass wants to be, or they're the beggars, the people that can't get any business, so they'll take whatever they can get. So it's like anyone good seems to get pretentious, or you're dealing with shitty operators that, like, the cheap ones are pretty bad at what they do. So it's like there's got to be a solution here that things can be accessible, but also really great. Meaning, like, and so our mission statement to this day is accessibility to great marketing for everyone. Like, how do we make it super accessible and nimble and flexible to work with great marketing talent? And that was. That it, to me it just seemed like why doesn't this exist? It's dumb, and it's frustrating. Yeah,
0: yeah. and I think and in, 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 and I think over time your kind of hypothesis proves out where you know churn is you know much lower than what you would you know think uh, yeah. what a lot of people would think, and I think that's what people fight against, right? It's like if we lock them in, then they're there. But to your point, it makes the barrier to entry or you know, right. the ability to earn trust, uh, you know, again, like, yeah, so it makes the sales motion a lot harder.
1: When it's like, yeah, it, it, as an agency owner, I'd love annual contracts. It doesn't seem very good for my clients, though. And as a guy that ran e-commerce companies, I never had anyone sign a contract to buy a pair of pants for me a month for a year. Just, they might prepay it, but they're never going to sign a contract. <laughs> That's so right. Like, I don't need contracts, just give them good service, good product, and it should work. And thankfully, that is how it has worked out.
0: So what are, what were the early years like? So 2014, this thing starts to go, right? So yeah. 2014, 16, 17, I think, you know, I kind of was first introduced to Hawk. I want to say around 2016, 17. Yeah. And it was like, wow, like this thing is, is really moving. Cause I was like, wow, like, wow, they've grown revenues, you know, amazingly. Um, you know, I know around that time too, you're named Forbes 30 under 30. So that's gotta be, you know, yeah, kind of a, a good, you know, kind of validation. Yeah, of early
1: like, 2016. Yeah, I would say yeah. one of the biggest, focuses I had for the first years was credibility. Like we had to show that we were credible and it's really hard in that landscape. And so every yeah. little piece of press, every client we could talk about, every case study, every award really mattered in the early days because that was where we got our validity and people could trust us to actually like, we have no barrier to entry. It's a month. So as long as we gave enough trust that like you can trust us for a month, you're not gonna, nothing's gonna happen. That was the big hurdle to get over, so to speak.
0: What were the early days like for you? Like, what were some of your biggest takeaways from those early days or kind of biggest lessons learned for yeah. the first three, four years?
1: Still to this day, the biggest lesson I've learned is, uh, it's summed up in a, uh, I'll try to make it a quick story, but a good story. I had an employee on a Monday morning, got an email at 3am that said, hey, Eric, long story short, I fell in love, asked her where in the world she want to go. She said, Hawaii, we're here now, I'll be working remotely. Month into business, this guy managed half our revenue and... We were not a remote operation. So I was like, (laughs) I'm sorry, what? So can't get a hold of him because it's Hawaii and it's three hours earlier. So around noon, I think he finally answered. And I was like, hey man, like I knew if I went off on him, he would just, he was like, it wasn't gonna go well. So I was just like, you know, just please handle your stuff. Have fun in Hawaii, but please make sure you're on top of your things. like, of course, I'm working remote. We'll be good. Next day, I get a call from every one of his clients saying, what the hell are we paying you for? We haven't been able, been able to get a hold of this guy. He said he'd have this delivered, blah, blah, blah. And like every one of his clients, meaning half my revenue is furious. And I'm looking at maybe losing half my business, which would not be good. We are nowhere near a sturdy place that that would work out very well. And so I try to call and can't get a hold of him. Around like 3 p.m. Tuesday, he finally answers. And I'm like, hey, man, what the? F-? And he's like, Eric? I'm going to stop you right there. This is the happiest day of my life. I'm getting married. And I need you to just respect that. And he hangs up on me. And I was like, all right. Uh, so I looked at Tony, my partner, the guy that ran the music company. And he's like, I guess I'm going to go learn how to do email marketing, Tony. And he goes and starts reading blogs. on. we used Bronto. <laughs> we <knew> it. <laughs> I love and, it. Yeah, it was awesome. And I'm like, all right. And then some. I forgot when I had to go somewhere. So I leave. I called my dad. And I was like, you're telling him a lot more elongated version of the story, a lot more detail, not yeah. rushing through. it. Took about five minutes to tell him the whole story. And his response is, Oh, yeah, that shit happens all the time. Anyways, I got to run, talk to you later quick. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> And I'm panicking. So I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. Like my business, yeah. oh my God. He's like, Yeah, that happens all the time. Still to this day, the most important, I think, lesson any entrepreneur can learn. Yeah, that shit is going to happen all the time. You run a business, yeah. you're always going to be putting out fires. And we started, this took, it took a couple of years really after that to settle in, maybe even three, because I remember a conversation with Tony, my partner about like Tim Cook running Apple, like they're dealing with geopolitical problems, trade wars, COVID, Amazon, like antitrust law, whatever, like the problems just get bigger they never go away that's right there's right. no finish line I and mean, we used to be like as soon as we fix this then it'll be good as soon as we fix it and i think a lot of people fall into like they think that when they fix that next big problem it gets easy never gets easy nothing's always going to fuck with you so like that to this day is the most important thing because i will i it, it actually caused me we've been offered some significant acquisition offers and that i'd say that lesson caused me not to take them because if you don't have that mindset that this is what you signed up for. You're looking for a finish line. Ugh, and gosh. if you do, if you're like, hey, every day you turn on your computer, there's going to be some other crazy fucking thing in your email, some lawsuit, some this, some that, that's running a successful business. When it happens, you're like, yeah, okay, this, this is what exactly. happens. Exactly. You prep for it. You, your emotional volatility goes away. You're just like, oh, so this is the next thing. Cool. Like you just, you're waiting for it. It's expectations versus reality thing. So when I accepted that, it just became way more fun because then nothing stresses you out anymore. And even like COVID, when it hit, like we used to joke that with our business, because we're very cost-effective, we're very nimble. In a recession, we're probably in a pretty good spot because we're actually the cost-effective way to get things done versus the big agencies. And we're like, the only way that we're ever going to have any problems is if like the whole world freezes or shuts down. I didn't think that was actually a possibility until <laughs> last year. And so- Yeah, then the whole world shut down. And for about two weeks, I was, I'd say for the weekend, I pretty much didn't sleep. I had like, I I didn't, nobody had, you know, a uh, plan or scenario set for what to do if your revenue goes to zero or what, you know what I mean? It was just like, what do we do? And so went through that, started to figure out a plan and then came out of it. But after a couple of weeks, I remember realizing, oh, this is just the next thing. This is, this shit happens all the time. This is the next one. This is the thing we have to figure out. And then it just became a lot more proactive. Like, okay, so this is the next thing you're going to throw at me, whoever you are. The so universe, yeah. yeah, the universe, exactly. Let's uh, let's go figure it out. And we did, and we did really well, um, partially because of luck, because of the industry we're in, but also because unlike a lot of our competitors, we leaned into it, we hired, we didn't fire anyone. We went full on the attack. We went for you know a lot of sales effort, and marketing effort. We did everything we could to retain our clients. And we leaned into it and came out really strong because that was, I was like, either that happens or the whole world's collapsing and who gives a crap anyways. Like if that's actually what's coming, what I do right now doesn't matter. So let's just lean into it and go for it. Because if it works, awesome. And if it doesn't, we're probably in a lot bigger problems than, oh, I spent some time on my business that didn't work out.
0: So yeah. And it's, I think it's man, what a, what a great lesson. I think, it's that acceptance. And I, 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 I'm I, smiling because as, you know, someone who runs a successful scaling people business, yeah. um, it's so true. It's like, I could just imagine like the anger you would almost get at like, oh, how did it? And then, and then it's just like a moment. And I think it's just like, maybe it's just you see enough cycles of like it all yeah. working out where finally you're like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Or it okay.
1: doesn't. I mean, that's, oh, that's no. the thing that you like People, yeah. entrepreneurs, especially tie their like own personal health and life, life force to their business. And like it real COVID forced me to go like, what is the worst case scenario? This goes to zero. I'll be alive. I might have to change my lifestyle a little bit, but I'll figure it out and I'll build something new. Like that sucks. I don't want that. But is that really like my life isn't being actually threatened right now. And I think that's hard for people to come to terms with, but I also personally like being adaptable and like trying new things. So it's not the scariest thing in the world. That's right.
0: All right. So last question here, as we wrap up is, you know, you, you do, you work in the marketing, you know, ecosystem and world, you've got a great network. When you think about marketing over the next three to five years, um, what are some of the trends that you're most excited about when you think about what, what marketing is going to look like? And a lot of my audience is B2B, B2B in particular, but I I want you to kind of give the B2C lens as well. Like what are are the big things? That that you think you know the the trends that you're most excited about as you look forward.
1: Yeah, I think this sort of dr short sighted type of marketing is going to get very difficult. I think that with the iOS changes with Facebook, I think with the competition moving so hard into digital because of COVID, things accelerated five years. But I think building a brand, building content, building a great you know customer relations, a great life cycle marketing strategy, I think that's going to be so much more critical these days. Um, we're we're dealing with it right now with clients that refuse to do email marketing and SMS and those things that now Facebook just doesn't work. It went from being not as good to like, you're screwed if you don't do this. I think it's going to be, I think it's super, I think it's great because I think the cream will rise to the top. I think it's going to be a little bit of a day of reckoning for the person that just knows how to pull levers on Facebook.
0: Yeah. I I think that that concept of brand, that (laughs) as the, the mechanisms we used to use to get that direct response, become more difficult brand cuts through. Yeah. And and it's like I, what I what I saw happen in marketing is like it was all brand then we got marketing automation and fancy tools and then it went all direct attribution and now I'm start you're starting to see that kind of like oh wait yeah. maybe maybe this was not the right. So so I I love that. So Eric, look, I want to say a big thank you. Thank you for joining me. This is a really fun conversation. Um, I think there's a lot of takeaways for people here around just persevering, moving to the next thing, not being too held to the next thing, letting the next opportunities come. And as I think yeah. as you you reflect on this story, there's just that next opportunity. If you're putting yourself, you're putting in the work, you're learning the skills, it it it, it just happens. And yeah. I know that, that sounds like a shitty way to think about managing your life or career, but it, you know, you never know when it's gonna happen, good or bad, but you continue to put yourself in those positions. And, and Eric, it was a ton of fun, man. I really no, enjoyed yeah. it.
1: No, thank you for having me. It's been great.
0: Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another extremely fun and interesting episode. I thought it was fun and interesting, so I hope you did too, of the Jake Dunlap Show. really great just breaking down everything that makes people who they are, the success, the trials and errors. And I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and make sure more than anything to go over to jakedunlap.com. That's where you're going to stay up to date on all the latest guests, additional details, prep notes. We're going to be sharing everything on jakedunlap.com. So go ahead, go over there. You can subscribe there as well too. And we will see you next week on
1: the Jake Dunlap Show.